This is a Federal News Network podcast. As Federal News Network exclusively reported late on Friday, the Biden administration is proposing a nearly 5% pay raise for federal employees next year. We get the latest now from Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Jason, what do we know and how do we know it? The Biden administration wants to give federal employees their biggest pay raise in 15 years. Tom, I went back since 2003. We have not seen this type of pay raise that that potentially could happen of 4.6 percent in fiscal 2023. Now, Federal News Network has obtained a copy of the what they call the passback document. This is something agencies get from OMB, usually in November. So it's a little late, but they usually get outlining budget priorities for that next fiscal year. Uh, you know, the, the one, the budget that's going to come out. And uh, we know from Shalanda Young, the nominee to, to be the director of the Office of Management Budget, she told the Senate Budget Committee last week that the budget should be out in March. So this is all about gearing up for that 2023 request. Got it. And so did they justify it in some manner? Why 4.6 percent? Or is it just can we assume it's simply inflation? I think it's a little bit of everything. They did not say in the specific document why they want to give a, a large raise, what, what is considered by many a large raise. I think federal employees may say it's not big enough, but that's a whole different discussion, Tom. They just said, hey, here's what we're planning, and here's some extra money in your budget to plan for that because obviously agencies' salaries and expenses tend to be the largest amount of their budget for for a lot. I did reach out to OMB several times. They have declined to comment on the passback. We know it's a quote-unquote pre-decisional document, Tom. So it's it's in, in all my years and your years of doing this, they have really never commented on that passback. But we know, I've gotten it from multiple sources, that this is what they're telling agencies to plan for. And we know, too, that the president and the pay agent can determine pay increases, even if Congress doesn't go along with it in the appropriated budget. Fill us in on how that works. You're correct. So if Congress does not say anything about the pay raise, so the president submits it to to Congress, Congress does not say anything. They don't approve it. They don't disapprove it. They just ignore it. What the president can do kind of in that August time frame is, is, is sign a kind of an order to say, hey, here's the plan. And then they sign a final one at the end of December, usually before the end of the year, to say, okay, this is what we're doing for, for the next calendar year. It, it's always a, a fun time for us because we're waiting for that order to come out as we've watched this go through Congress. Okay, House doesn't say anything. Okay, Senate doesn't say anything. Okay, will the president kind of go forward with it or will something else happen? So this is by far, Tom, not a done deal. But the fact is, The White House wants 4.6% for federal employees. We've seen what they call the Federal Adjustment of Income Rates Act, the FAIR Act, sponsored by Democrats in both the House and the Senate. They're pushing for a 5.1% raise. So there's a lot of support, at least among Democrats, for this higher raise for federal employees. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. The Biden administration wants to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions by the federal government by 2050. The General Services Administration and the Defense Department are in the market for greener sources of electricity. And meanwhile, the White House is threatening to hold up the Postal Service's plan to acquire its next-generation delivery fleet if those vehicles are not electric. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And Jory, let's start with DOD and GSA, and what are they asking from industry? Well, DOD and GSA has a pretty clear mandate from the Biden administration to make sure that all of the energy used by all of the federal government comes from clean energy sources by 2030. This is all part of an executive order that President Joe Biden signed back in December. And this is the first real effort that we're seeing from these agencies in going out to vendors and asking how feasible this goal is. They're trying to better understand some of the potential barriers of 
vendors supplying this much this much energy in time of this 2030 goal and they're asking current suppliers of energy to the federal government to outline how they plan to transition to carbon pollution free electricity this request for information from gsa and dod outlines preferred sources of energy that includes marine energy solar wind geothermal hydroelectric nuclear and hydrokinetic but These agencies are also being clear-eyed on the reality that fossil fuels aren't going away anytime soon. And so they're also looking at the idea of carbon capture to offset some of that fossil fuel emissions. The Defense Department in particular is the largest user of fuel, I think, of anybody in the world, in which they acknowledge. What do they plan for themselves and what does the administration hope for their reduction of greenhouse gas emissions? Definitely the administration can't move the needle on this without input from DOD. And they really recognize that, you know, they see climate change as a threat to readiness in a lot of regards. And so DOD is doing what it can to, at least at this point, get a better understanding of where its baseline is with greenhouse gas emissions. It issued another RFI uh, just this past summer, asking some of its major vendors about uh, where it stands on greenhouse gas emissions and what goals they have to reduce those emissions. Anecdotally, the information DOD got back was pretty interesting here. For vendors that do business with DOD but also compete internationally and do business with Europe, they had a really good idea of what their greenhouse gas footprint was like. But for businesses that only do business with DOD or only do business in the U.S., they had a much less clear picture of what that footprint looks like. And so that adds an extra wrinkle to the Biden administration's plan to link up its clean energy goals with its Buy American goals. And to better understand another challenge here, we heard from Richard Kidd, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Energy and Environment Resilience. He spoke recently at the Defense Business Board, and he says, you know, there's really some limits to what DOD can do. It's really a lot harder to think of a zero emission F-35 counterpart or a zero emission, you know, uh, Marine Task Force, or a zero emission Armored Brigade Combat Team, all right? So there's a lot of uh, challenges there. Yes, there's no charging stations, I guess, in the mud of Ukraine, I shouldn't say that. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And this Postal Service Next Generation Fleet of Vehicles, what's the story there? Yeah, this is definitely a major upset to this ongoing procurement here. We're supposed to see these vehicles out on the roads by next year. And so this does add a, a, an extra challenge to the Postal Service. The White House is warning that it might hold up this plan to acquire a next generation vehicle fleet for USPS. Uh, and the reason is because that the agency isn't making electric vehicles a top priority. At this point, USPS expects to make about 10% of this next generation fleet electric vehicles and the White House Council on Environmental Quality, as well as the EPA, they both sent letters to USPS criticizing that 10% goal. And they were saying that the agency's recent environmental impact review of having this 90% fossil fuels, 10% electric vehicle fleet uh, didn't give a complete picture of its impact on the environment and asked the agency to go back on that. And actually threatened, you know, this going through federal courts or 
Congress taking action if the Postal Service uh, fails to do that. And these electric vehicles, how does the White House think the Postal Service would pay for them? Because they're way more expensive than gas. Yeah, that's an interesting question. The Biden administration says it strongly supports the $6 billion the USPS would receive under the Build Back Better Act. But part of the problem there is that that is unlikely to pass with the current support that legislation has in the Senate. The administration is also saying that the Postal Service can ultimately foot the bill on its own at this point. The Postal Service, as of the end of calendar year 2021, had $23 billion cash on hand. So this is something it would be able to afford, but that's a tough ask to ask of the agency given its long-term financial problems. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? and? What was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe a hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.